Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, where our focus today is going to be on verses 1 through 4. That is Matthew 6, 1 through 4. You can find that passage on page 949 in your pew Bibles. We've been spending a lot of our time lately discussing the ins and outs, if you will, of life lived in union with Jesus Christ by faith. With everything that we have been looking at recently, I thought perhaps it would be good for us to consider the Christian life just a bit further and to talk about how the Word of how the Word of God says that this life is to be lived on this side of glory. And a question that really seems to plague every redeemed mind when considering the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and its effect upon the believer is knowing what we now know. Knowing the gospel and the power of the gospel. How should we now live? Of course, beloved, it's a question that demands an answer. And it's one that the Word of God is most certainly not silent on. And so the text that I would like for us to consider this morning comes to us from the middle of what is unarguably the greatest sermon ever preached on this earth. And it's the sermon that we in the church affectionately refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel account. It begins in chapter 5 and it runs through chapter 6 and 7. And I'd just like to quickly this morning, just to give you a context of these opening verses here in chapter 6, just briefly discuss what takes place in chapter 5. Chapter 5 records the opening of this Sermon on the Mount in verses 3 through 16. And it's what the church refers to quite often as the Beatitudes. And you and I have looked at those verses together before. We saw that they were not simply standards that the Christian is to work hard to achieve in this life, as many have wrongly interpreted them to be. Rather, in the Beatitudes, we see a very detailed description of the Christian as he is by the very nature of his being one who has been called by the grace of Almighty God to be a follower of Jesus Christ. One who is, by the grace of God, living in union with Jesus Christ through faith. In verses 13 through 16, then, we see the Christian man reacting to the fallen world that he's been called to live in. He, in a sense, is reacting to the world, and the world is, of course, reacting to him. And then the third and final section of chapter 5 begins with verse 17 and then runs through clear to the end of the chapter, verse 48. And in that section, we see the true relationship of the genuine Christian, the one who being empowered by the Holy Spirit entirely by God's grace, the one who embraces Jesus Christ and his righteousness by faith alone, we see the true Christian and his relationship to the holy law of Almighty God. And in those verses, Jesus Christ 
as the real, true, right, and final authority of the law of God completely dismantles the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and their incorrect rendering of the law of God. And he goes on to expound very clearly for his followers exactly what the law did in fact both say and what it means. And of course, chapter 5 then ends with the very memorable exhortation in verse 48, which tells us that we are to be perfect, just as our Father in heaven is perfect. And of course, beloved, that is a simple, quick sort of 10,000-foot view of chapter 5. We've looked at it together in much more depth before, and as is always the case, I would encourage you to spend a little bit more time looking this entire sermon that's given to us here by Jesus in chapters 5, 6, and 7 over in your private time reading the Word of God in the days to come. We're only going to focus on part of chapter 6. I want to talk to you about the Lord's Prayer next week, and this is just sort of the opening uh, of chapter 6 leading up to the Lord's Prayer. And so we come now to yet another building block in understanding the Christian life. Chapter 5 primarily dealt with the wrong teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees regarding the law of God. And now in chapter 6, we move towards the place where the proverbial rubber sort of meets the road. And having illustrated for us that correct exposition of the law being lived out in this fallen world, before the face of Almighty God. That's what's meant by my title for the sermon this morning, Coram Dea. It's probably familiar to you if you use our table talk devotionals. That Latin phrase, you see it on the first page or the inside cover of every single issue of of table talk. it's the, the, the editorial that's written in the very beginning is always called Coram Deo. And of course, if we read through that together each and every month, you're familiar. And it literally means before the face of God. The Christian is to live this life, this life lived under the sun, knowing full well that everything he does, every idle word he speaks, even the things that he thinks in this life, are done with the understanding that Almighty God, the sovereign God of the universe, sees and knows all of it. There is nothing in this life that could or ever does escape Almighty God's notice. God himself tells us in scripture that he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere present. He is omnipotent. Meaning he's all-powerful. Nothing is ever outside of the realm of his glorious sovereignty. In chapter 5, we saw the Christian's characteristics who are who he or she is, how he or she is to behave in society. We're reminded there of just what God really expects of someone, or I should say demands of someone. The Christian man is called to love his enemies as well as his neighbors. 
He's called to give to him who asks. To selflessly go the extra mile. To go on loving and forgiving even as Almighty God has done with him. He is to be selfless in in the truest sense of the word. He's called in chapter 5 to understand the law and in fact understand all his life in the grand perspective of his own wonderful redemption. And then to live his life accordingly. The Christian is to live as one who is in a unique relationship to Almighty God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are to see in the law of God not our possible potential to achieve perfection in its eyes through our our sheer determination and willpower, through the sweat of our brow, but rather we should see the utter sinfulness that is at the heart of even the most noble deeds that we ever perform in this fallen flesh. And then having seen our complete failure in the law of God, having been crushed by our hopelessness in it, we are then led away from ourselves, away from our inabilities towards the Lord Jesus Christ, who kept it all perfectly for us who paid the penalty for our failure upon the cross. And it's only knowing and understanding all of this that we can then move into this next section of the Sermon on the Mount here, beginning in the, the sixth chapter of Matthew, where we will begin to see a picture of the Christian going into the world and living his life before the face of God. Coram Deo. Being consciously aware that we are always, always in the presence of our loving Heavenly Father. So we move now from the corrected teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 5 to the life lived out under the sun with the proper understanding of the law and how we relate to it and who we really are as the particular and peculiar people of God. We have before us in Matthew 6 a beautiful picture of the children of God living in special relationship to the Father as they make their way steadfastly through this pilgrimage that we call life. So let's look together at the Word of God this morning. Again, I ask that you follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the Word of our Lord. And of course, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for your word. 
We're grateful for this wonderful section of the gospel according to Matthew where we see this sermon preached by Jesus and there's so much for us to glean from it. We pray, Father, that you would open up our understanding. We ask that your spirit would give us eyes and ears that truly see and hear that we may know these things and be transformed by these things and live more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, as I mentioned, we've looked at chapter 5 together. We, we did it just a couple of years ago. And if you remember looking at that, you remember the fifth chapter of Matthew. Undoubtedly, you, re, you, you remember the way in which it brought conviction to our souls. And I'm afraid as we begin to dig into this sixth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, that if you're hoping that maybe this one would be a little less searching a little less convicting than the previous chapter, then you are probably going to find yourself sorely disappointed. Because this is once again a very searching portion of sacred scripture. If not even a painful one. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, has this to say about the sixth chapter of Matthew. He says, I sometimes think that this is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entirety of the scripture. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us that will not allow us to escape. There is no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. But thank God for it. The Christian should always be anxious to know himself. No other man truly wants to know himself. The natural man thinks that he knows himself and thereby reveals his basic trouble. He evades self-examination because to know oneself is ultimately the most painful piece of knowledge that a man can ever acquire. And here is a chapter of Scripture that brings us face to face with ourselves and enables us to see ourselves exactly as we are. And so we see that though this sermon of Jesus Christ is changing gears just a bit here in this sixth chapter, that there are going to be similarities to chapter 5, which I would hope that we would all regard as a very searching chapter of Scripture as well. As we come to grips there with ourselves in the face of our own reflections looking back out at us from the mirror of God's holy law. Another similarity that we'll find in this chapter is that there still is a a contrast going on here with the scribes and the Pharisees. In chapter 5, it was their incorrect teaching. That is, it was their false teaching that was being confronted and contrasted with the truth as it was being expounded upon by the truth himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this sixth chapter, the contrast is not going to be so much the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and the rules that ought to govern the religious life as it is on the practical living out of the life of faith or our whole religious demeanor. And behavior in this life. 
And so here in the first verse, we have an introduction of what is to come in the laying down of yet of a general yet great principle governing the life of the Christian. And then that's followed by three illustrations of that principle, which will continue to run all the way through verse 18. And those illustrations you will see are dealing with very practical ways in which we as Christians are to practice our faith in three specific areas of worship. The way in which we are to perform, or that is, do our duty towards God and our neighbor, the way in which we are to pray, and the way in which we are to mortify our sinful flesh. Our duty towards God and our neighbor, the way in which we are to pray, and our, the way in which we are to mortify our sinful flesh. And this morning, in looking at only the first four verses of this section, we're going to be focusing primarily upon the principle itself and the first illustration of that principle in the way in which we are to do our duty towards God and our neighbor. Now, we must begin here with just a brief textual matter so that there's not any confusion. If you glance at this text, you might be saying to yourself, Steve, you know, I see the first illustration clearly enough. It's right there in the text. Charitable deeds. So Jesus must be talking about our giving to the work of the ministry. Well, beloved, I would tell you that giving is certainly covered in a very broad sense with the phrase duty towards our God and neighbor. And that the fundamental principle opening up this whole discussion is also right there in the first verse. And I want to explain. In the first verse, a better translation of the word that's translated here as charitable deeds in the New King James, or as almsgiving, and uh, in, in perhaps if you have, I think it's the English Standard Version. Depending what version you're reading this morning, would be the word righteousness or piety. Righteousness or piety. It's a matter of textual criticism, and I don't want to get into all that between manuscripts that has allowed for this discrepancy in translation. The Greek word that is rendered here as charitable deeds is dikaiosune. It literally means righteousness. It comes from the word dikaios, which means righteous. And if you read any sound commentator, that's how all of them say it should be translated here as righteousness rather than as charitable deeds or almsgiving. Now let me, let me just clear this up for a moment. The difference in the grand scheme of things is not that big of a deal. But it can lead to confusion over this first great principle that is laid down here by Jesus Christ. That is, that you and I should take heed to do our righteousness, our piety, our duty in worship to God before men, not to be seen by them, or we will have no reward with our Father who is in heaven. In other words, the first great principle that we need to come to grips with as we think about our life lived out before the face of God, our life quorum Deo, is that everything we do in this life, we do unto God. Moved by our love and our thankfulness for what He has done 
and never simply to be recognized by men. Beloved, we absolutely must understand this about the Christian life. Because if you get this wrong, you are liable to find contradiction even within this very sermon by Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount. If you fail to correctly understand this, you read it and you then think, well, perhaps in in chapter 5, Jesus said that I was to do what? I was to let my light so shine before men that they see my good works and glorify my Father in heaven. But here now it appears that Jesus is saying that I'm to do my duty unto God in secret that is away from the gaze of men. How in the world am I to make sense of that? Those two statements at least appear to be outright contradictions to one another. And of course, brothers and sisters, there's no contradiction here in this sermon. I would make the case that we are in fact called to do both. At the same time, we are to live our lives as before the face of God, all the while bringing glory to God before the eyes of men. The Christian is to live in such a way that men look at his life, see the quality of it, and glorify God because of it. The Christian is not doing these things in order to attract the attention of men, but when he does them by the grace of God, men are drawn towards God as he calls home his church. So the Christian is to fight the desire of their flesh to have the praises of men. And I trust this morning, beloved, that we all know exactly what that cry of our flesh sounds like, right? Because I am sure that you, like me, hear it continually. But Scripture says, not that we are to simply try to be light in this world, or that we are to work to be that city on a hill whose light rips through the darkness, which everyone sees and cannot avoid seeing, But we, by nature of being in union with Jesus Christ by faith, being reconciled to God through Christ, we are that light. We are that city. You understand the difference. We must see it. We must see to it that we understand that fine and delicate balance that exists here. Because the truth, in truth, the danger has only partially been avoided when we realize that we must ignore the heinous cry of our flesh to be recognized by those around us. What danger still exists for us in these bodies of sin, this flesh, once we realize that we must live before the face of God and not as before the face of men? Think for just a moment about the scribes and the Pharisees. What would they do whenever they came to a great principle in the law of God? Well, they would remove the letter from the spirit behind it, and then they would go to the extremes. 
And just so you know, I'm, I'm not just picking on the scribes and the Pharisees again. I'm going to tell you we do this all the time in Christianity and evangelicalism. Take this principle before us here this morning. Our flesh is always trying to lead us towards the extremes. It either leads us towards absolute pretentiousness, arrogance, that is, are making great and almost always exaggerated boasts about all that we do or all that we have done, trying to bring whatever glory we can, of course, to God and to ourselves. All the while mouthing to God be the glory. Or we go in the other extreme direction. and We foolishly justify becoming like monks or hermits. And I want to tell you, both are equally wrong. We either try to get the glory for ourselves or we become so intimidated, so afraid of our own tendency for self-glory that we simply remove ourselves from the world thinking that if we could just segregate ourselves from the evil world, well, then we must avoid the natural desire. I'm sorry. If we could just segregate ourselves from the world, that we would be okay. That things would work out. But of course, we know that the monster of sin is not lurking out there somewhere in the world where I can hide from it. But it resides in my own heart in my own fallen flesh. And as Christians, you and I, need to avoid the the natural desire to look at this principle and to try and make a hard and fast rule for life from it. We are to trust God as we are led by the Holy Spirit, and that leading is not the result of my trying harder. It's the result of my Father in heaven doing precisely what He has promised to do. My duty as a Christian is not to bring the praises of men upon myself, even if I've convinced myself that it's for God's glory. Nor is it to remove myself from this world as a means of keeping myself pure and undefiled from its influence, thumbing my nose at all of the unrighteous ones out there, as if the entire life were about me. You say, well, what is our duty? Well, I'm glad you asked. Our duty is to celebrate the wonderful gift of the grace of Almighty God in this life. My duty is to enjoy the privilege that is truly mine in being reconciled to God through the blood of my Savior, Jesus Christ. My drive in this life as a child of God is not the the temporary praises of men who are here today and gone tomorrow, just like me. My drive, my motive for obedience is my grateful heart that knows that I've been saved by grace and I deserve nothing less than death. I merit nothing. It's only the Holy Spirit applying the benefits of Jesus Christ to my stony heart that ever allows for me to stand. Do you see it, beloved? We are to let the joy that is ours in Christ silence the lying tongues of our dreadful flesh. Do you understand the word of God? The choice in this life 
is not really between pleasing God or pleasing my fellow man at all. That's too easy to accept. And I don't want you to fool yourself this morning. Your sin, my sin, is much more disgusting than that. The choice is between pleasing God or pleasing ourselves, our flesh. We want to please them only so they think better of us. What appears to be What appears to all to be so completely selfless really may be just another form of subtle selfishness masquerading as selflessness and humility. Beloved, do you see the heinous nature of sin and the way that it truly works? If we fall for the lie of our flesh, we come to believe that this life is ultimately all about me. We see sin only in terms of outside of ourselves and it becomes very easy to become completely and entirely absorbed in ourselves. But beloved, when we take heed of what we are doing in living out the Christian life before the face of God, our Father, we as His children begin asking ourselves those difficult, often painful questions that truly get to the heart of exactly where it is that we stand. It's a question I ask all the time. I ask it of myself every day of my life, and I ask it of you about every time I come into this pulpit. Why do we do what we do? Right? What's the motivation lying behind our actions? And when that answer is completely undesirable, the follow-up has to be, what are you going to do about it? Beloved, these are difficult. Probing types of questions, they're often painful to answer honestly, but they are necessary. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, calls his sheep away from themselves into his everlasting, mighty, wonderfully merciful, loving arms. We have to see it. The Christian life is never a call to perfection. It's never a call to show the world who is really holy. It's a call to live this life with a very real, unfettered joy, knowing that though you are completely unlovable, God loves you despite you. And that joy, that gratitude, that light will so shine before men that they will, by the very power of God, being drawn to glorify Him. And we must live to do that. To bring glory to our Father in Heaven. And of course, once this principle is in place, we see that it carries over to our outward behavior. Though we are not working at modifying our behavior in an effort to earn the favor of God, that's not to say that our behavior is left unaffected by our union with Jesus Christ through faith. We are being conformed into His glorious image in this life, which means that our behavior does in fact change. We are being sanctified, but even that is the work of Almighty God in us for which we ought to be eternally grateful. 
We see the principle in action here in verses 2 through 4. Jesus, again, uses the Pharisees and the scribes as being the wrong example of how to live the Christian life. Do you notice that? Though he does not specifically mention them by name here, we see enough similarity in other places in the Scripture to know who it is that Jesus is referring to here as hypocrites. He says, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets where they may have the glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And of course, the reward is the mere empty, temporary, worthless praises of men. And if you've ever sought the praises of men or perhaps you've earned the praises of men, then you know exactly how empty and superficial and short-lived any satisfaction in that kind of thing really is in achieving it. Have you ever done it? I'm sure you have. I've told you before, as, as a young man, there was little more than I wanted in this life than the approval of my father. And I'm sure many of us can relate to that, right? Everyone who knows me knows how I felt about my dad. I loved him. And I had an unhealthy desire as a young man to be approved by him. I did everything I could to show him how much I loved him. And my dad was a a rough and a tough guy. And so I spent a lot of my time trying to prove just how rough and tough I was. And I worked like a mule for far too many hours a day to prove that I was at least as hard of a worker, if not harder than he. And I couldn't think of anything else. I had a a single-mindedness about it. It was the driving force in my life. One day towards the end of my dad's life, I realized that I achieved it. I earned my reward. I was definitely noticed and I was appreciated. And you know what? The satisfaction that I received from that moment in my life was very, very temporary. So much so I was left wondering whether or not it was all worth it. And I want you to understand something. I'm not talking about my desire to honor my father. That was something different. This one, this one was all about me. Can you relate to that? I wanted to be approved in order to make myself look and feel good. I sought his approval as my only comfort in life and in death. You see the difference? The pursuit of self-interest comes with a reward that's not really a reward at all. Because the superficial satisfaction of a job well done is here and then gone. It's temporary at best and not at all what we should be motivated by in this life. Jesus said, when you do your charitable deed, don't let your right, your, your, right hand know what you, your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And I hope you get the point. Good works, charitable deeds, righteousness, piety, they are the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ, which is the gift of God. Never the means of your securing Almighty God into your debt. 
If you are operating from the understanding of the latter, then you need to understand, you need to know and consider that your good deeds really come from wicked, selfish, vain, and sinful motives. So don't fool yourself. Beloved, the supreme object in this life should be to please God, Him only and in everything. That's what Jesus Christ did in His life. He lived entirely for the glory of the Father. He did nothing out of selfish or vain motives. He attributed His very words when speaking to His own disciples as being but the words of the Father. His works were, according to him, merely the works of the Father. His whole life was about bringing glory to the Father. He seems at times in the pages of Scripture to be hiding himself from the eyes of the people. There was no pretentiousness in him. No arrogance. And though we would certainly be able to understand if there was. But there wasn't. If ever there was one who could make a boast in this life, it was Jesus Christ, yet he never did it. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he faced the harsh, bitter reality of all of our sin being placed upon his shoulders, he never cried, why me? No fair. I can't take it anymore. He simply said, not my will, Father, but yours. He sought not his own honor, but the honor of the one who sent him. Beloved, this is the selflessness that we should know, albeit imperfectly, as the followers of Jesus Christ. We should have a big picture view of this life. We should see everything in the light of our own glorious redemption. We should rejoice in it. There's no room in the Christian life for you and God God will bring about His own glory and He doesn't need your help. What He wants is your worship, your adoration, not your strained, gnarly little sacrifice. I want to close this morning by leaving you with one final thought as we leave this place of worship and we go back to our own places and we live out our own lives. When you wake up every single morning, you should remind yourself of something daily. You are always, always in the presence of God. You can't slip away in the dark and be away from Him. You can't go anywhere where you escape His gaze. He is everywhere. He knows absolutely everything. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your will. He knows not just what you say and do. He knows what you think. And beloved, I want you to understand, I'm not telling you that this morning to fill you with fear and dread or to somehow scare you into the kingdom of God. The notion that you are living your life before the face of God, that you are living your life quorum Deo, the terror of that is not at all what I'm hoping to leave you with as you face another week. Though fear is certainly a part of it, it's not the motivation for obedience. 
Beloved, what I want you to consider as we close this morning is that you are always in the presence of Almighty God. And yes, he knows the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart. He knows your lies. He knows your self-aggrandizing, pretentious ways. He knows every single one of your legalistic behaviors. He knows your faithless anxieties. He knows every malicious thought of your fallen mind. And though that certainly is terrifying, I would remind you of this. That God knows those things. And He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, in this world to purchase you body and soul through His blood. Though you were dead in trespasses and sins, he died for you, knowing all of it. Not just the sin you committed as a young person, the sin you committed yesterday and the sin you're going to commit tomorrow. He knows it. And he loves you. And you are to live out your existence on this earth. Joyfully following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Running to Jesus. And being refreshed. Doing the deeds that are a part of our worship here. Getting over ourselves. And looking heavenward where we are promised that our Father is watching. And that he will reward those who because of their redeemed hearts by the grace of God serve him and bring him glory. Beloved, is your worship this morning reflective of the understanding that you are always in the presence of this God? And that you cannot wait to praise him for the amazing grace that he's given to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because beloved... Truly, that is your service. That is your worship. Because that is the Christian life. Amen? Let's pray.